Today is a good day, isn't it? I can't think of a better way to spend my day um, gathering with you for worship. This is uh, one of the highlights of my week for sure, gathering with God's people. And then I have a small group community I get to belong to. And we'll have some really good, helpful conversations about our lives and about our, our time together this morning. And then I'm going cycling with some friends afterwards. Yeah, there's a few that are cycling as well. And uh, that'll be sort of a regular occurrence, so stay tuned on that one. And then at 6.30 p.m. tonight, where will you be is the big question. Yeah. Um, my friend Brian uh, Kelly said, I think we need a special prayer meeting at the end of this morning's gathering. Um, we all say amen to that, right? Amen. Um, they are picked, by the way, to win the Stanley Cup this year. You know that, right? That's the recent news that came out this week. Yeah, that's legitimate. None of, you, none of you gamble in this room, I know that. But the odds makers have said that the Leafs are picked to win the Stanley Cup. Yeah. And, um, well, here's for wishing, right? Here's for wishing. I still believe, though. Do you still believe? Yeah, we still believe. All right. Um, there's a food drive back to serious matters, um, helping people who could use some help. Um, some of you have already started bringing in some non-perishable food items, gift cards. Thank you already for what you've done. But if you can help us next week, if everybody brought just a handful of items, we would overwhelm our benevolent pantry and then give over to the um, Feed the Need Durham Food Bank. And uh, you've heard the news like I have. There are a lot of people who are accessing um, food banks more uh, lately than have in a very long time. So we want to do our part. Thanks be to God. We're talking about shalom today. Part of shalom is having enough, more than enough, right? When we have more than enough, uh, we're blessed to be a blessing, so if you can uh, just make a note on your calendar to bring something next Sunday on Mother's Day, that would be fantastic. And on Friday, it was a very special day for Pastor Alicia and Andrew. They were married um, in, uh, yeah, in Vaughan. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. Um, so they are away on a honeymoon, and uh, we're just celebrating with them. It's, it was a really, really cool moment. All right, so um, whether you're online or in person, we're glad you joined us today. We're continuing this series called Choosing Shalom. If you happen to be new to faith, new to church, new to King Street, the word shalom is a Hebrew word. Uh, it's kind of got a lot of traction in culture because uh, it's been a more popular word that's outside the English language, of course. And shalom means peace, right? The Jewish people speak shalom to one another. They extend peace. It's a greeting but it's not simply a greeting. It's so much more than that. Uh, it's about wholeness. It's about well-being. It's about, as I mentioned, having enough, more than enough. Uh, David, who wrote Psalm 23, my cup overflows. This is a picture of shalom. Uh, I love what Dr. Tim Mackey says in the Bible Project. It's not the absence of conflict, though it includes it. It actually is when two parties who have been in conflict drop their weapons of war, work together for each other's mutual benefit. This is kind of getting at the idea of shalom. Uh, the equivalent to the word shalom, which is Hebrew, in the New Testament, which is Greek, is irene. It's getting at the very same idea. Um, and if you happen to, uh, again, be here for the very first time, this is uh, part number four. We've been talking about choosing spiritual health and wellness uh, we've been talking about 
choosing relational connection and support. This is part of what it means to experience the shalom of God. And then last week, we talked about choosing forgiveness, uh, choosing to cancel debts, uh, to say, you don't owe me anymore. Because the alternative is to be a scorekeeper and to live with resentment. And resentment will keep the shalom of God far from our hearts and lives. And so we will have, as we talked about last week, many opportunities to learn how to forgive, unfortunately, right? Right in the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's the inhale of God's forgiveness and it's the exhale of his mercy and grace to others around us. So today we're going to talk about choosing radical acceptance, This is not an easy conversation point for us, but it is a critical aspect of us keeping the flow, so to speak, of shalom coming into our own hearts and lives. Getting stuck is sort of like a mini mini theme within this larger series called Choosing Shalom. Last week, we get stuck keeping score. This week, we could perhaps get stuck... um, wishing that our lives were different. And so we have an orientation that's stuck somewhere else rather than the present moment or what God has in store for us in the future. So we're going to talk about choosing radical acceptance. Um, Many of you are familiar with this. It's called the serenity prayer. At least the first few lines you might be familiar, but let me read this for us. This is kind of getting at the heart of what it means for us to choose radical acceptance. It's written by Reinhold Niebuhr, and it's been a part of the Alcoholics Anonymous movement. And uh, so let me read this. Uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace or to shalom, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right. We believe that, right? Trusting that he will make all things right, or in the book of Revelation, all things new. If I surrender to his will, surrender and acceptance go together, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life. See the the, the domino impact, that I might be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. Amen. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Was that on the screen? Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Somebody needs to remind me of this before we're done today. We're going to close with that, okay? And we're going to recite it together. Do you want to do that? Okay, so somebody please don't let me finish because I've had brain cramps on occasion, Pastor Gary. All right, so this concept of radical acceptance. Um, If there is a picture that I would want you to hold, pardon the pun, with you today, it's this idea of Closed hands versus open hands. Closed hands versus open hands. We're going to come back to this before we're done our teaching, but think about this. The idea of having a tight fist versus having our fingers and our hands open. If we can live open-handedly, we will be much better positioned to grab a hold of all the things that God is giving to us. But when we are tight-fisted, When our hands are closed, it's hard to reach to other people. It's hard to grab a hold of the stuff God wants us to grab a hold of. And often when we clench our fists, it becomes something that is um, very much a defensive posture and sometimes an aggressive posture. So the picture for us today is this, closed fist versus open hands, okay? 
There's a passage to ponder that we're going to recite together, if you're comfortable doing so. So if you're able, would you stand with me? Uh, It's taken from John's Gospel, chapter 14. These are the words of Jesus. Again, just a reminder that Jesus spoke Aramaic. The New Testament is recorded in Greek. And so we have this word, arene, which is the uh, compatible, complementary word to shalom. And so Jesus introduces us again to this very important idea. So would you recite beginning at verse 25 with me so your neighbor can hear you? Here we go. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So again, the last line on this passage is that we ought not to allow our hearts to be troubled, and then he gives a directive to his disciple friends, and he gives us a directive today. Do not be afraid. Fear gets in the way of all the good things God has for us. It's also a human instinct that keeps us alive, right? We can go with, in our secular culture, they may call it intuition. We may call it a prompting of the Spirit. But fear can come to us to keep us from danger. So it's not all bad. But when our life is saturated in fear, and when it becomes unreasonable, and when it's divorced from the work of the Spirit, and it's no longer intuition, now it's going to dominate our lives and keep us from the shalom or the peace of God. This is what Jesus is saying. Do not be afraid. Do you know humans are actually incapable of consciously doing two things at once? Our brain can do a lot of things at once, but we're not conscious of it. So you can be driving home from work, your foot's on the gas, it's on the brake, your turn signal, turn on the radio, you can be singing away, thinking about something. Lots is going on, but you're only conscious of one thing at a time. So if you're afraid, guess what you're doing? You're preoccupied. Your energy is going in all sorts of different directions, and it's keeping you from that beautiful wave that comes to the shoreline of your life that just laps onto the shore, the blessing, the shalom of God. You miss the forest for the trees, so to speak. So fear can be helpful, but fear can also, when we're saturated with it, keep us from a good and beautiful life and keep us from the shalom of God. All right, as is typically the way we handle our teaching times here at King Street, I've got three thoughts for you today. And uh, so here's the first one as we think about what it means for us to um, choose radical acceptance. The first one is this. Complete control in life is an illusion. Complete control in life is an illusion. I hear some of you sort of chuckling to yourself, smiling through that comment, saying, oh yeah, 100%. We like to be in control though, don't we? I say this often in funerals lately. For some reason, it's been coming to me as I've been planning them. In Psalm 23, the text says that he makes me lie down in green pastures. We don't like to be made to do anything. But he makes me lie down in green pastures. One day he's going to make all of us lie down, right? That's what we say. We were laid to rest. He was laid to rest. She was laid to rest. He makes me. Sometimes God does make us do things. Sometimes life happens. Sometimes other people 
are granted some measure of power over us, things happen in life. And you and I, when we think we are the commander of our vessel, we get to steer the ship to some degree. But we are not the captain of our own vessel, are we? Let's be honest here. We get this beautiful thing called free will, but it has its limitations. Um, so in Matthew 6, Jesus says, do not worry. There's a reason why he said do not worry, because we have a tendency to do so. Because when we look out at the horizon of what's in front of us, and we know that we can't literally choose our own destiny, though we like the idea, um, life will happen, things will come to us, they are mediated through the hands of a good, sovereign God. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But we, when we're not at our best, have a tendency to worry and get upset and become afraid of many things. Um, one thing is for certain, in the context of this, complete control in life is an illusion. This is the truth. Tell me if you agree with this. White-knuckle living is stressful. White-knuckle living is incredibly stressful. Why do we think we have to hold so tightly? It's almost like in our minds, even as the believing community, we've got this idea, and it's a false idea, that if we don't do all the heavy lifting, that we will go without, or that it won't work out for us the way we want it to. And so we white-knuckle our way through life. And you know, right, that if we're holding tightly to all of these things, and we're white-knuckling our way through life, joy, peace, the shalom of God is incredibly elusive, isn't it? You might be able to control a few more outcomes because you held more tightly, but at the end of the day, did you have a lot of joy and peace? Were you at rest? Was your soul in a place of quiet surrender before God? Or were you putting yourself at the very center of the universe saying that I got to make this happen or else? Now, pause there for a second because everything I just said is absolutely true. And when we're going to live with truth, we're going to find this sort of, um, it's not an uncomfortable middle, but we're going to live in the tension. So what I just said is 100% truth. But Jesus also, in the same context of saying, do not worry, he says, look at the lilies of the field. You know, they don't clothe themselves. I clothe them with beauty. They're, they look way better than Solomon did. And then my paraphrase again, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. Look at them. Your father feeds them. How does he feed the birds of the air? Have you ever studied the birds? Do they just sort of land on a branch, open up their beak, and birds fall from heaven? They go into the soil. They're digging around. They find their treasure, so to speak, right? But Jesus says, your father feeds them. Jesus is not opposed to us putting our beak in the dirt, so to speak, and go to work. That is equally true as what I just said earlier about we don't have to white-knuckle our way and we don't have to hold so tightly and think that we're at the center. If we don't make it happen, it'll never happen. Both of those things are true. If we land here and we put an exclamation mark, underline, put it in bold, uppercase, and we lose sight of this, we'll lose our joy. If we land over here and we say, it's all about God doing stuff for me and I don't have to do anything, you're going to be unproductive. It's both and. What do they say? Pray as though everything depends on God and work as though everything depends on you. I love that. Great idea. You're not going to go too far wrong with that. But when we work like it all depends on us or we pray it's all God, we're going to miss the sweet spot or the tension of the truth, which is to live between both of those very true ideas. All right, here's the writer of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 9. In their hearts, humans, this is us, 
plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Isn't that true? Have you made plans before? Strategic plans. Even prayed about those deliberate, strategic, intentional plans and then find that there was a gigantic mid-course correction. The creator looks at us and he says, oh, I love their ideas. They're wonderful. I've got some other ideas. And you know, this is a crazy thought, but it's so true. I'm glad I'm not entirely in control of my life because God gives so many better things to me than I could even imagine giving to myself. And if I was supposed to be the one piloting my vessel, I would have taken left turns and right turns and gone through intersections and all that. And God said, I want you to pull over there and I've got something beautiful for you to discover. And it's like, yeah, but that looks uncomfortable and hard and difficult and unappealing. He says, I'm going to take you there anyway. And you get there and you find that there is a treasure for you on the way. And things are not as they appear to be. And so I'm glad that there's someone bigger, better, who's over my life that I can trust. And that's where we're headed for this teaching theme for this morning. Um, this came to me the other day. I love Rick Warren because he says things that are memorable. But this isn't Rick Warren. This is Dave Larmer. I like this. <laughs> Write this one down. And you know what? Be honorable. Give me credit for it. How's that sound? I'm just kidding. Don't, don't give me credit for it. When stress is high, Shalom says goodbye. Did I overpromise there, Gary? Because it really wasn't that profound, was it? I delivered on that one? Yeah, good. When stress is high, Shalom says goodbye. That's memorable. And it's true. Very, very true. When stress is high, Shalom says goodbye. Shalom is denied through hypervigilance. When we're always on, and we got to make it happen, right? Stress, um, you know, when it's high, shalom says goodbye, and shalom is denied through hypervigilance. There's this story. It's one of my favorites, even though I really am one of these people who I can't stomach violence at all. Um, and so many parts of the Old Testament have violence, you know, in it. And this story is a, a bit of a violent story. Somebody dies. But what it points me to is um, the brilliance and the beauty of God, whom you and I cannot hide from, even if we think we can. Some of you know where I'm going with this already, but it's found in 1 Kings chapter 22, the king of Israel, Ahab. He was not a good man. The prophet came to him and said, God has a message for you. And he told him about it. But King Ahab thought that he was going to outsmart the prophet and outsmart the God of Israel. And it's an unbelievable story about how God is sovereign over all things. King Ahab goes to great lengths to hide himself. And it just wasn't possible to pull off. So let me read this, beginning at verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. This is Ahab. I'm going to enter the battle in disguise. You wear your royal robes. Because I don't want to get plucked off just in case this prophet is perhaps telling the truth. So the king of Israel, Ahab, disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone small or great except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, surely this is the king of Israel. This is Ahab. So they turned to attack him, but when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commander saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. But someone, I love this part of the story, but someone drew his bow at random. 
and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. It's like close your eyes, pull back the, the arrow, the bow, release it, and it just happens to go in, and there's a lot of part of the body that's covered by armor, and it hits that section just between it. And the text is very deliberate. Someone drew his bow at random, but was it really random? So many things in our lives we think are random, but there is a God who is either redeeming and reclaiming or he is behind the processes. If we have eyes to see, ears to hear, we'll be able to discern all that's going on. So the king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot. That evening he died. God had a word. He spoke it. And he's sovereign over all things. Even when we put on disguises and we hide and we try to think that he won't know, he won't be able to deal with me, the text says that God knows where we are. Shalom is present when we loosen our grip and trust God who is forever good. You and I are not aimlessly making our way in the world. There's a good God who is before us, behind us, beside us, above, beneath, and he is surrounding us, as David said in Psalm 139. Uh, Psalm 46.10, one of my favorite passages, makes so much sense in Hebrew. Be still and know that I am God. Be still literally means let go of your grip. Loosen your grip, open up your hand, and let go. Be still and know that I am God. That's how we know. Stillness, loosening our grip, precedes knowing God. When you and I try to white-knuckle our way through life, we miss an opportunity to know Him because it's all about us. And so we learn to open our hands and release. And this is consistent with Jesus, right? Into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. He's quoting Psalm 31, verse 5. So complete control is an illusion. That is the truth. Uh, secondly, perfectionism is a problem. Not looking for a show of hands, but I'm sure there are people in this room who would consider yourself to have a control problem. And there are probably some people in this room who would say you have a tendency to be a bit perfectionistic. Anybody relate to any of these things? Yeah. Perfectionism is a problem. It's really good to have high standards, by the way. It really is. In fact, I think when we get to know Jesus as king, our standards change. We begin to hear the whisper of the Spirit, the invitation to walk with God, and he calls us up, right? Calls the best out of us. So it's good to have high standards. And being at our best is really important. Being the best is not possible. Well, somebody's going to be the best, but I'm not called to be the best. I'm called to be my best version of myself, which resembles the Lord Jesus. And so uh, perfectionism is a problem because our relationship with failure gets all messed up. See, if you have perfectionism in its rightful place, you understand that failure is an opportunity for learning. But when we are captured by perfectionism, what happens is we actually begin to internalize the messages that go something like this. I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. I'm a failure. It's not that I failed and I'm learning. I actually say, I'll never get this right. You can see how self-defeating perfectionism is. And it's not just robbing us of shalom and joy, but it actually robs everybody around us of peace and joy. So this is an important idea. 
Progress is for now, right? Calling the best out of us. Perfection is for the other side. Progress is for now. I don't think Jesus is glorified when the church treads water and doesn't grow, when we stagnate, or when we perhaps regress. That's not the value system of the kingdom of God, right? He's leading us progressively. We're being prepared for the uninterrupted presence of God. And so we are to be on the grow. But perfection is for another time. It's for another place. It's for when we experience life with God. And this can be very challenging for us, especially for those of us who were raised in religious environments that maybe place the emphasis on external practice or behavior modification, all of those kinds of things. Um, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada is a wonderful family of churches. That's what we're a part of here at King Street Community Church. It gets things largely right, but there is no perfect expression of the body of Christ this side of heaven. We're hopefully all adding some angle or value to it. And uh, we're part of what historians would call a holiness movement. And that came with a lot of really, really good attributes. It called us to a progressive sanctification, becoming more like Jesus in the world. But sometimes when we weren't at our best, we added extra biblical rules. We actually elevated the guardrails and called them commandments. When I was a kid growing up, you wouldn't be caught dead in a movie theater. If you're coming out of a movie theater, it was like, oh, this person's not walking with Jesus at all, right? If you go to a, a dance, oh, our bodies weren't made to move like that. Actually, watch a child and turn on the music. Pastor Al, turn on the music and watch a little kid, right? They, they move to the music. You can dance in church, can't you? You don't want to see me dance in church, but some people do dance in church. Some of us have, a, have an endowment for movement. Others are, it's one of the challenges they have in life. I would, I would be in the challenging side. I'm comfortable walking and clapping and then... Right? But you, you know where I'm going with this? Sometimes what we did is, unfortunately, well-intentioned. Well-intentioned. Our, our elders had the right heart on the matter. And they wanted to save the next generation grief. And so worldliness was problematic. And it still is. But Jesus, through the, you know, his friend James, his half-brother, actually, he said, uh, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Chapter 1. Verses 26 and 27. So being polluted by the world is not a good thing. Do you know one thing that has happened over the last little while? This is my observation, and I pray that it's spirit-informed. Over the last number of decades, we've come out of a place where there was a measure of legalism associated with the church. And we elevated guardrails and called them commandments. I just said that earlier. But now we've reacted and responded. And now, and I'm a teacher of grace because I believe it is a gospel of grace. And without grace, no one's getting in the kingdom. And without grace, we're not staying in the kingdom. So grace is massive. But Paul says, do not sin so that grace will abound. And the reason why that commandment or directive is there for us is because sin always hurts. It always deforms. It always dwarfs. It always keeps us from what's best. And so scripture teaches that grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. We're thrown in, as I love to say, in the deep end of God's grace. We're in over our head, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But we are also not to abuse or abuse grace. And, uh, but this is the way history goes, isn't it? There's the pendulum swing. It'd be nice if we just stoop right there, live in the middle. But humans always overreach, always well-intentioned. 
but we do need correctives from time to time so that we can live more fully in the middle of what God wants us to, uh, to pursue. So here's Paul, and he's going to bring the middle right here for us. Ready? So I find this law at work, Romans 7. Although I want to do good. Tell me if you can relate to this in the room. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I'm well-intentioned. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but, here's the but, I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And then he says this, what a wretched man I am. Put a period there for just a second. If Paul doesn't finish with the next part of his thought, then I would say Paul is missing a part of the gospel of grace. But he says this important truth. What a wretched man I am. I know my inclinations. I know the directives of my own life. I know that he said to go left, and I have this powerful force inside of me that wants me to go right. What a wretched man I am. An important idea for us to not divorce ourselves from. There is a sense in which sin makes all of us bankrupt. You and I cannot earn our way into heaven. We can't get there by being good enough. We say to ourselves, I don't have what it takes to please a holy, perfect God. What a wretched man I am. But that's not the end of the story. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the other side of that very important conversation. And then the opening verse, the next chapter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, I'm a wretched man, a woman, but thanks be to God. That's not the end of my story. Jesus came and rescued me because we are loved and there's no more condemnation. Right? Radical acceptance, choosing it. Shalom is right there. All right, so uh, back to perfectionism and how problematic that can be. When we have unrealistic expectations, it can move us in three directions. We can have unrealistic expectations about ourselves. Maybe some of you do. Maybe about others. And then perhaps even about God. How can you have unrealistic expectations about God? He is beyond our capacity to grasp. He's way better than we can imagine. But where we have expectations that are off-kilter is when we think that God becomes very formulaic. This is what he always does. This is what he will always do. We did sing about Jacob and David and Mary. We learn from history how God has worked in the past, and we can expect that he will work and be as faithful as he was in the past in our present and future. But what he decides to do with your life and my, my life is really largely in his court. He's not a vending machine where you put in the coins, pull the trigger, and get the outcome. There is not, no such thing as, it's myth. God is not mechanistic. He is a person. He is with us now. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows the things will get right in the future and the things will get wrong in the future, and he loves us anyway. He's a person who walks with us. And so our expectations of self, when they're too high lead to a lack of joy and peace. Others around us, we expect people to deliver what they're just not able to deliver, and it's oppressive to them. And then even when it comes to our relationship with God, if we have this category of what we expect from him and it's off the charts, uh, we we set ourselves up for disappointment. Um, So complete control in life is an illusion. Perfectionism is a problem. And, and Paul says, just so you know, this is not my idea. Those three ideas, self, others, and God, it's right here in this passage, Romans 15, verse 7. 
Paul says, accept one another then. So this is those around us. Just as Christ has accepted you, you're acceptable as you are in order to bring praise to God. All three are there, others, self, and God. And he starts with that big word, accept. We need to accept the Lord personally, receive him as he is, the one true God of heaven and earth, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, reveals himself in Jesus as the Savior of the world. He's inviting us to be the leader of our lives. We say yes to him. And then we choose what it means to accept ourselves. Are we ever good enough to satisfy a holy God? No, but we are good enough as we are because we are loved as we are. And then other people around us. The test of our spirituality is how do we love others? Beautiful, beautiful invitation there. All right, here's the last part. Radical acceptance requires, this is a mouthful, radical acceptance requires trust and an eternal perspective that flows from an active mind and a soul at rest. Maybe I'll repeat that. That's a mouthful. Radical acceptance requires trust and an eternal perspective that flows from an active mind and a soul at rest. Um, Life will just not go the way we want it to go all the time. Um, Living with disappointment and accepting things as they are is a very, very important practice. Uh, It's an attribute of the mature, and we're not always mature because sometimes we we make demands and we offer up complaints, but it's a very important part of this idea called radical acceptance. Um, And I need to say this. Radical acceptance is not the same as radical agreement. I don't have to agree with all the things that have happened in my life and call them good to accept them. I don't have to agree with you on what your political view is, on what you think is the best next step for King Street Community Church, or what you think about a host of different moral conversation points in our, in our world. I don't have to agree with you, and you don't have to agree with me. So I don't have to, as Rick Warren says, back to Rick Warren, I don't have to see eye to eye with you in order to walk shoulder to shoulder. In fact, if you're going to walk shoulder to shoulder with somebody, you won't see eye to eye. Right? If I'm walking with my wife and we're going for a 30-minute walk through our neighborhood, she's looking at certain things, I'm looking at certain things, we're shoulder to shoulder moving in the same direction. God made her a certain way, God made me a certain way, and we're taking it all in. Life's coming to us as we move along, but we're moving together. It's a beautiful picture, actually. In fact, we won't go very far if we turn ourselves to one another, be eyeball to eyeball. Not that that's a wrong thing from time to time, right? But if we're going to move forward together, it requires a shoulder-to-shoulder posture, and our eyes are moving all over the place, back to each other, out and around. And so it doesn't mean approval. Uh, So, can I say this? If someone is treating you poorly... Radical acceptance does not mean that you need to stay in that environment. If you're being mistreated, it doesn't mean it's acceptable. Advocacy, your own personal advocacy, is appropriate. Boundaries matter. Our relationship with the past needs to resemble some form of it is what it is in order to not get stuck there. If we don't somehow get to the point where we say open-handedly, it is what it is, we will never move forward the way God wants us to. And that's one of the hardest things to do because we look over our shoulders and say, 
that was unacceptable. That was wrong. Someone needs to pay for that. This is like part two of last week, right? Remember our friend we watched on the video? What a beautiful, beautiful example of forgiveness that was. I love this part. Can I hug her? Can I give her a hug? Do you remember that video? Absolutely beautiful. It is what it is. And I'm grieving it. We can grieve it. We can say that was terrible. That changed me. That should never have happened. That was wrong. I'm not going to tolerate any more of that, but it is what it is. I have to get to the place where I can say I have to accept it. You have had moments like that in your life, haven't you? Where life has dealt you, from your perspective, a very bad hand. And maybe it was other people who dealt the hand to you. Or maybe it was life in the body you're living in. Or maybe it was just the nature of life, and it's hard to even prosecute anyone, but it was just this stuff happened. How do I allow the inside of my soul to become a lot less Velcro-like and much more Teflon-like? So stuff doesn't stick to me and I carry it with me wherever I go. Some of the stuff that comes to us can and should and will shape us. But we want to be with God, inviting his spirit to redeem it, to make us who we're supposed to be, but not carry with a heavy heart the things that should have been left behind a long time ago. So in challenging circumstances, we call to mind God's faithfulness. We're going to wrap up right now. Here's the book of Lamentations. If you were Jewish living back at this time in history, Lamentations chapter 3, Jerusalem has been gutted. It's been ransacked. The Babylonians have come over and literally burnt the city. It's a bad time in history if you're Jewish. And this is what Jeremiah, we believe, wrote. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The city's been burnt to the ground. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. But the city's burned. And he says, we're not consumed. For his compassions, remember we talked about God's character, his, his womb-like character as a parent? His compassions, his womb-like character never fails. He's always, always like a mother, carrying his children, carrying her children. When you read the Bible, you'll find that God, very clearly, especially in the New Testament, as Jesus describes him, is described as a father. But you will also find other attributes of God that are mother-like. And compassion is one of those words. He carries us like a mother carries her children, close to her heart. Womb-like is what compassion means. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. When anxiety is intense, and it will be from time to time for most of us, we make asks of God. We make asks of a God who hears us, and we surrender to his will. This is what Jesus did. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He is, his capillaries on his face were breaking, and he was sweating drops of blood. This is a medical procedure. This is a medical um, uh, event that's happening for Jesus. He's overwhelmed with anxiety. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me, he says to his disciple friends. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
What I love about Jesus is in the present moment, as he looks out into the future that's coming very soon, he asks the Father to make some changes to the mission. He asked, Jesus to make, he asked the Father to make some adjustments to the program. You and I can do that. We can say to God, God, in your mercy, would you please make changes to the present, to the future. But when things are in the rearview mirror, we have to practice radical acceptance. Um, Father, forgive them. Into your hands I commit my spirit. There's beautiful, beautiful, radical acceptance. All right, so where are your hands these days when it comes to being tight-fisted? Are they closed? Are you white-knuckling your way through life? Are you open-handed, reaching for all the things God wants to give you so that you can pick them up and take them with you? Where would you say, don't tell anybody else, it's between you and God, to what degree on a scale of 1 to 10, if 10 is like they couldn't be any more white-knuckled, would you be at the 7, 8, 9 range? Would you be down the 4, 5, and 6? Would you be a little bit more open-handed in the 3, 2, 4 range? Where would you say you are these days? Are you finding it natural, supernatural to trust? Radical acceptance is on the other side of the shalom of God. And it actually, it actually, if we don't go there, will keep us from it. And with every passing day we live in this world is one less day we get to live into the brilliance and the beauty and the goodness of God. And he wants us to say, just like Jesus did, into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. We want to be like the birds of the air. Stick your beak in the dirt. Go find your next meal. Remember, it's not just about you. He'll provide the worms for you to go looking for. And remember, it's not all about you. There's a good God in heaven. And the random things that come to you, they're never random. There's always a good God there. Amen? Can I get a loud amen today? Amen. All right. All right. Okay. So what was I going to do? Pastor Gary, thank you. Yes, there it is. You got to stand for this, don't you, if you're able? All right. Let's make this our prayer. And uh, it's a beautiful one, isn't it? Maybe we'll say it just thoughtfully, loud, of course, but slowly. Let's let the word just settle in, okay? Ready? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking, as he did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. That means tonight at 6.30 p.m.